joining us. Welcome to Conversations for the Animals. I am Lisa Tynan with Houston Pet Set, and I am really excited to be joined today by Heather Crane. Heather is the owner and founder of Sea Dog Animal Training, and uh, we're going to understand why it's called Sea Dog in a minute, which I'm very excited about. Um, And today we're going to be talking about animal behavior and enrichment and husbandry and all the things I love to talk about. So I'm really jazzed for this. I hope that you are ready. Um, So just to start, introduce yourself. Tell us about your journey and and where you've worked and who you've worked with and what you've worked with, because this is the coolest. Sure. Yeah. So I started um, my career when I was 16 years old, working with dogs and cats. Really thought I wanted to be a veterinarian. Um, So I was just trying to get kennel experience, just to kind of learn the business and what was expected. And I got promoted really quickly uh, with a, uh, a veterinarian I was working with. He promoted me to a vet tech and then kennel manager, which was interesting working part-time and trying to manage people as a 16-year-old. It uh, <laughs> yeah. didn't always go over the best, uh, but it was a lot of really great leadership experience early on. And from there, I went to college and I was still on that pre-vet track and then I met E.O. Wilson. Yes. May he rest I, in peace. I know. I know. That was <laughs> sad news to hear. But um, I actually got to have lunch with him. Wow. And that was one of the perks of going to a small liberal arts college yeah. to get my education. Yeah, there's really rich experiences there. So I got to meet E.O. Wilson. And as I was visiting with him, uh, talking about my dreams of you know working with California sea lions, he kind of stopped and was like, wait a minute you want to be a veterinarian, but you're talking about these wild animals. Have you considered, you know, learning about wildlife behavior? And I said, well, gosh, no, I haven't. (laughs) I live in Oklahoma. There's no oceans to be found. (laughs) So, I mean, I was like 20 days from graduating and um, I had already applied to vet school. Turns out I didn't get in anyway. So my whole path just took like a hard left (laughs) And I started volunteering for the Oklahoma City Zoo, started working with sea lions, volunteering, uh, a lot of hard work, networking, knowing the right people and having that good work ethic. Um, I I don't like to say I was lucky because there is some timelines that are lucky, but the effort was definitely there. Oh, yeah. Um, So, yeah, I got I got a job working part time with California sea lions. And then you fast forward. My husband's job moved to Houston. And now all of a sudden, I'm looking for another job with California sea lions, which is not easy to find. But thankfully, the Houston Zoo had been opening a position right at the time. Wow. Um, So I moved down three months ahead of my husband. I'd never been away from home. So came to Houston all by myself. It was an interesting period of growth for me. Yeah. Learned a lot. Um, I have family close by, so that was helpful. Um, so yeah, I worked at the Houston Zoo for uh, almost 10 years, and I started Sea Dog Animal Training. So uh, kind of blending the training from wildlife to the domestic pet, and that's been an interesting transition I as want well. to talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. so uh, you know, when you're working at a zoo, you get to work with the animals. Mm-hmm. It's just you guys there in the enclosure connecting. Right. When you are a professional trainer for dogs and cats or horses or whoever you're working with, you have the added element of an owner. And also the species are different. 
So what was that transition like? I mean, you worked with dogs and cats before, but sure. professionally like this, what was that transition like for you? Yeah, well, there was a light bulb moment for me because as I was working with California sea lions, uh, you know, they're called sea dogs. That's kind of how we get our name yeah. too. Um, but they're not domesticated by any means. They're still wild animals. They haven't undergone the tens of thousands of years of domestication right. like you know, many of our at-home pets have. Uh, but what I was realizing is that um, it, was, it was brought to my attention that there's a stray and feral population, which um, is amazing because I've been amazing in the worst way mm -hmm. because I had been in Houston for, you know, eight years and never knew about it. Wow. And so it, it starts popping up and I'm seeing it more and more. And what I was realizing is that California sea lions and the way that we train them and the relationship-based, trust-based practices that we use had a direct application to feral dogs. Huh. So it actually wasn't originally um, thinking about, you know, pet owners. Mm -hmm. It was helping these dogs that were at risk because they were not adoptable. And seeing that I had a, a gap that I could fill with yeah. my skill set, um, training the exact same way that we do California sea lions and helping rehabilitate ferals. So, so cool. Yeah, that's like about 80% of our business model is working with rescues. And most of what we take are feral or aggressive animals. Um, but yes, we, d we do work with um, our, our everyday well-adjusted yeah. animals as well. <laughs> um, so it's a little, you're right, it is a little different. But the, when, it, when you drill down into behavior, the techniques and theories are the very same. Yeah. So that's your transition was perfect. Yay. So people when you know especially first time animals, oh, animal owners, pet owners or people who haven't had a pet in a really long time, pet ownership has changed. And the way that we treat and view pets has changed. And I'm I'm curious um well tell us a little bit about your training methods, you know, dumb it down for us. Tell us sure. If I'm a dog owner and I've never had a dog before and I wanted to potty train my dog, you know, everyone has these, oh, well, if they mess up, you rub their nose in it and things like that. I think there's just such a, there's almost too much information for people to get out there. And right. so, you know, pare it down to the basics. How do you train an animal, right? Yeah, there, there's a lot of information out there and it's confusing for pet owners because uh, a lot of times those ideas conflict with one another. And so now they're really lost and they're, they just... Like, where, who do I trust? Who do mm -hmm. I follow? I think, uh, to your point about how pet ownership has changed, these animals are no longer just pets that we have that we, you know, keep around mm -hmm. and throw some food at every now and again. <laughs> right. These are family members. Uh, many times people will tell you that, um, you know, they, these animals are their children. Uh, even if they have children, that, <laughs> yep, yep, yep. And now <laughs> I, I also have a son now. <laughs> Uh, my animals are really important to me. Uh, they get the same level of de dedication. Um, and so that's kind of where people have moved. And mm -hmm. if you look at just the, the marketing in the pet industry as well, um, even through COVID, that's where people were spending their money. Yeah. It was all going to your pets. So I'm not really sure that I've answered your well, question yet. But I think you're getting there. You were okay. on your way. <laughs> I'm so on my way. I think knowing that people love their animals, I think sometimes we see there's there's a some kind of a disparity between how much they love their animals and maybe how they train them or how they treat them, not fully understanding how animals learn. Right. Oh, yes. That's, yes, that is where we're going. Thank <laughs> yeah, you. we're there. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I think uh, with all the extra information out there, it could be confusing. Uh, but for 
our methods, we always suggest using positive reinforcement, relationship-based training. So for those people who are already saying, this is my family member, they are already doing more informal training than they think. Uh, and you get that through basic routines. So I, I say routines is one of your animal's best friends yeah. uh, because it gives them something that's predictable. They can start to anticipate what the effects might be for if I do this. like mm -hmm. it, So if I come inside when I'm asked, I'm going to get this delicious treat. And so many people are already using these methods and they just don't recognize you know, how to make it a more formal process. Okay. So that's something that we help with. Uh, we don't just go in and say, do this to get this result. Uh, we're actually teaching, we're drilling down into the theory and the technique so that people can understand. Our hope, I always tell my clients, is to work myself out of a job. Yes. I don't want you to have to call me. <laughs> it's fine if you want to. Uh, we do have constant contact, so we're available for you. Um, but we, just like we like to empower the animals, we want to empower our owners as well. So what are what are some of the obviously you're, you're working with unknown strays, ferals, but when you're working with pet parents and their pets, what are some of the problems you're seeing or, or the like the most common issues parents are dealing with with their pets? Yeah, some of the most common issues, again, because we see them as our family members, some of these animals are getting away with undesirable <laughs> behavior, um, like you know swiping things off the counter. Uh, it can be really innocent at first, but this is how rehearsal works. So every time an animal does something, they're 10 times more likely to do it in the future. That is in regards to things that we like, as well as these undesirable things. Um, so a lot of what I deal with, uh, I would say resource guarding is a pretty common one. Okay. Especially in some of these um, more common breeds that are kind of popping up, like your golden doodles. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's not anticipated, you know, familiarizing yourself with the breed that you're going to be getting. There's breed tendencies. Oh, yeah. um, and so I think those resource guarding is one of the biggest ones. Um, and for someone who maybe doesn't know what that term means, what does sure. that look like as a pet owner of your pet resource guards? Yeah, yeah, you're right. That's a, a good thing to explain. <laughs> so that can be anything that's really positive to the animal. Most often we see it start with food uh, or like high value bones, treats. And so what it what the animal will do is they'll take it and maybe they'll run and hide in a corner. And that's all well and good until you approach. Or let's say they get something, maybe they get a chocolate bar they're not supposed to have. Now you're trying to take it. This is when we start seeing some of these, uh, what we describe as agonistic behavior. It's not friendly. Mm -hmm. It's get away from me. This is mine. There's snarling, growling. Um, their eyes may dilate. Ears go back, pinned to their head. So those are some of the warning signs that you know, you can look for that are often associated with resource guarding. Okay. And if you continue to push that animal, uh, maybe the first time you can get it away successfully, but this animal practices it again, remember it's 10 times more likely to occur, uh, it's going to be even harder to get it from them if you don't have something to leverage for, you know, why they should do that. Right. Um, and so oftentimes it leads to bites. And unfortunately, that's when I usually get the call is, the behavior's been occurring for a while. It's been escalating, and then we get, you know, bites. So do you recommend folks, if they're seeing behavior that they're concerned with, I, I'm assuming you would say contact someone sooner rather than later, right? Don't let it go that far. Right, yeah. If, if it's unsettling to you at all and your instincts tell you, like, oh, I don't like that, uh, go ahead and call a professional. Um, even if you just do a consultation, 
Um, you don't have to commit to the training. And for us, um, if you've rescued or adopted your pet, you get a 30 minute free phone call anyway. So there's, that's nice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm curious cause you're talking about resource guarding and I, I keep wanting to bring this back to the whole wildlife thing. Cause I just think it's so cool. Do you see a lot of similar behaviors between, well, I, let's say naughty behaviors between yeah. owned pets, domestic animals, and maybe a zoo, a, a sea lion that lives in the zoo? Do they do sort of the same naughty things? Uh, yeah. So I think why I even felt comfortable addressing resource guarding at all is because in the zoo setting, we're really preventative. We understand that we are not going to compete for any resource that a 1,000-pound sea lion <laughs> would like to have. You can have it. Yeah. You, <laughs> you drop the fish, that's, you know, shame on you. Learn, learn to handle your fish better um, because now it is free game unless you teach them a different response. Um, so we can actually, we've trained the animals. If I make a mistake and I drop a slippery fish, we just ask them to stay in place allow us to pick that up. We don't feed fish that have dropped onto the ground, but then instead for letting us pick up the one fish that they could have stolen and gotten, now we give them several handfuls. Oh. So now it's it's teaching the animal an alternative response. And that's a lot of what you'll see uh, with our clients as well. So we cat. try and shift this mindset from, I don't want my pet to do this to what would I like them to do instead? And it's a lot more productive. Um, I think it's just a better headspace for the owner for the animal, um, you know, if you think about it in the context of us at work, we don't much care for a boss that just tells us what we did wrong all day. Right. You know, they're screaming at us. It doesn't much motivate us to do better. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's the same for our animals. And I think it's an often overlooked thing that I find um, and just reteach with, with our clients. So you don't just say no. You yeah. say no, here's what you do instead. Exactly. Or you say, you did a great thing. That's right. Yeah. Here's your next opportunity for reinforcement. Yeah. And reinforcement, uh, we can get into that yes. later because it's a complicated Absolutely. thing. But I think many times when I first bring up reinforcement to our clients, they're thinking, oh, so my animal's only going to listen to me if I have a treat. Right. That's not true. Um, I mean, it is true if that's how you train them <laughs> because animals do what they're trained to do. So I like to teach our clients, uh, secondary reinforcers as well. And so secondary reinforcers are things that have become positive over time by associating them with a primary reinforcer like food. Primary reinforcers are things that animals have to have to survive most often. Um, so these are social animals. So for our pets, it is the affection, attention. Um, you know, you could argue that those are primary because these are companion animals. Right. Uh, but in a wild species, that wouldn't be a primary, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's just teaching our clients that toys and attention, verbal praise, these are all reinforcers that we can use to help motivate and encourage behavior that we want to see in the future. Awesome. I love positive reinforcement. It makes me happy. Like, why would you want anything yeah. negative between someone you love so much, right? Let's all make it all positive. Right. Um, so uh, one other behavior I wanted to address only because I see this, you know, working in the in the animal welfare field, so many animals are surrendered because of separation anxiety. Yeah, oh, and, that's true. That and that is I, one that we worked a lot on. Yeah, and I yeah. think I think number one, a lot of people maybe don't know how to recognize it or they think it's separation anxiety when maybe it's boredom. Sure. Um so if you can maybe talk about what true separation anxiety looks like and then maybe a little bit about how you can work with it because it is fixable. It is fixable. 
Yes. So I'm I'm actually surprised that I, I didn't think of this one on my own because it is one that we deal with quite often. <laughs> so much so that we did even create a free resource on our website um, so that it's a shaping plan for how do I teach my animal separation anxiety training. And it, it, we also integrate the crate for a, a safe space. Absolutely. So I think early recognition is, it's like any behavior. The sooner you recognize it, the faster you can put in a behavioral intervention and also shape alternative behavior. So many times we'll see it when, let's say, um, an animal goes to their safe space or their bed or you know wherever that may be, maybe the couch, and you start picking up your keys, your wallet, all of a sudden your animal is salivating, so they're slobbering everywhere, they're pacing, maybe they're whining, or for some it can be more subtle, maybe they're hiding. Um, it's just knowing that this behavior looks different than how you see your animal 90% of the time. So I I like to talk about baseline behavior. Mm -hmm. What's normal for your pet? That's all that means. And so then whenever you see any slight escalations, you, you know, jot that down, whether you, you know, you can remember it, you can put it down if you, you know, like handwritten notes. Your notes thing on cell phone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because then if you get to the point where you need professional help, those notes are invaluable to us to kind of understand the behavior and the progression of that behavior. Because if we can figure out the function, then we can find a solution for you. Um, So oftentimes we've got to uncover a lot if there were no, you know, stories that you could tell us about how it kind of came to be. Um, So what we do is we break it down for the animal. We do a lot of fake outs. We pretend like we're leaving. Mm-hmm. We pick up our keys and we uh, we desensitize. So what we show them is every time I pick up my keys or my wallet and jiggle the door handle, doesn't mean I'm leaving you. It right. sometimes means that, but not 100% of the time. So it's helping the animal manage their expectations of what is happening. Because, again, this is a trained behavior. Right. Um, the animal sees... Uh, we talk about the ABCs of behavior. The animal sees that there's an antecedent. You picked up a key. The behavior that is expressed in the animal is they start getting nervous, um, start wanting to be closer to you. Maybe they're guarding the door, not letting you leave, um, like, a, like a toddler grabbing onto your leg. <laughs> Don't go. <laughs> That's right. And then that consequence is often that you still leave. And so then the animal is left having all those feelings of uncertainty and so if you can give them some tools, uh, we'll, we can talk about some enrichment. Um, and again, teaching them just calm behavior is what gets you to come right back uh, in those little fake out moments and the practices. Then you can really teach them how to manage their own feelings, right? So they're not dependent. So enrichment, right. again, segue, perfect. Yeah. So if someone hasn't heard the term enrichment before, yeah. I mean, maybe they can put it in context. But when we're yeah. talking about animals and, and pets specifically, or also talking about wildlife. Yeah. What is enrichment and why is it important? Yeah. So for our pets, um, I like to think of it as any way that you can have fun with your pet or allow your pet to have fun on their own. So it's activities. It's mental engagement. It's if you've seen the the puzzles. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think one of the most common things that you'll see uh, when people get a new puppy is um, like a Kong stuffed with peanut butter. Yeah. That's great. Animals are going to figure that one out pretty quickly. (laughs) So stepping up your game. um, That's actually another service that we offer is helping build your own enrichment. Um, Because whenever I talk to our clients and I, after I explain what it is and how it it can be activities, it's 
um, engaging some of their natural instincts and natural responses. Um, if you think about the five senses, then you can key into each of those. Those are great ways to come up with enrichment. Um, if you're drilling into those, then you can really get this mental engagement piece. And so it prevents boredom. It gives the animal an outlet um, so that they're not just waiting for you all day. Right. And many times I like to also think about the specific breed. So, you know, if I've got like a, a, a herding breed, then maybe I'm going to have, um, like you can create like a, a PVC pole with a toy on the end of it and you can have the animal chase that toy around. Instead of yeah. nipping at your ankles. <laughs> That's right. Instead of your ankles, now they have something to direct that energy to. Um, and then I think one of the expectations that I have to help clients with is that just because we think it's fun doesn't mean that the animal does. Sure. And sometimes they don't understand what you want them to do. So you actually have to train them and teach them how to play the game. Um, and then you give them the, the freedom to create their own rules with the game. Um, and there's always, 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 please, any enrichment or device that you give your animal, watch and supervise first. Um, never just put something in and leave because some animals uh, or some breeds are more likely to ingest the item. And now your $10 of fun turned into a $4,000 vet bill. Um, so opposite of enriching. That's right. That's right. Because now you've got a welfare issue <laughs> with, you know, not an unintentional one. Right. Um, so, yeah, I, I think enrichment is you could be really creative with it. And, and I think that that's the fun of it is it's not just a Kong thrown in there. Uh, there's a, a marine mammal trainer that says, uh, you know, a, a ball bouncing against a skimmer. Sure, it's in there, but that's not enrichment mm -hmm. for the animal uh, that's been in there for two weeks and just ignored. So right. we find ways to help them learn. What do I do with this thing? Yeah. Yeah. How do I play with it? That's so right. actually, that that kind of brings me into my next uh, topic, which is talking about something that feels almost like it's specific to Houston. I'm sure it's an issue everywhere, but especially here where it's warm most of the year, we see a lot of pets just sort of left outside. Um, so sometimes we think, oh, I have a backyard. I can let my dog out and he's going to play. But they don't exercise themselves, right? They're not going to go out of their way to enrich themselves if they don't feel like it. Right. Yeah. So are you asking like what, what are outdoor enrichment what, yeah, ideas? Or? What is life like for an animal who spends its all of its time outside? Is that, yeah. you know, it's, it's, does it, maybe it feels like it's nice that they're not cooped up, but is that really enriching for them? Right. Um, probably not, uh, unless you've done intentional measures to make it enriching. Uh, it would be the same as if someone you know, kicked you out your front door and locked the door for eight hours and <laughs> have said, fun. have fun. Well, <laughs> eventually you're going to want to come in and cool off. Um, you might want to have your snacks, uh, that engagement with people. So it's, it's the same for our animals. Um, D Houston is, is dangerous to leave your animals out. So, um, you know, that's, I think that that's also why many people are bringing them in, not just because they're our family members, but also because it is dangerous mm -hmm. if you don't have appropriate housing. Um, and, you know, that's, you know, we could talk about yeah. what appropriate housing yes. looks like. Actually, um, I think that that would be a, a great way because the, the timing of this is perfect. You know, January is Unchain a Dog Month. Mm -hmm. And um, just recently on the 18th, uh, Texas officially went into effect with SB5, which is known as the Safe Outdoor Dogs Act. 
And um, I should mention, you know, Houston Pet Set and our, our partners at Texas Humane Legislation Network were full behind this because in Houston, it is so common to see animals, dogs chained outside. Right. And SB5 now makes it illegal to have them chained. They can still be tethered mm-hmm. um, with appropriate measures, and they have to have very specific shelter. Um, it's a first step. It's a first measure to take. But I'm interested to hear from you from a, a behavior from an enrichment standpoint. Is that enough? Should we be going farther? Should people be tethering their pets outside? Right. Yeah, this is a huge win uh, for for animals all, all in Texas. This is something that uh, has really bothered me. It's bothered a lot of our clients. Uh, many of our clients you know, wonder, like, who would do that? Right. But, you know, circumstances are different. And I think that that's where we have to ask the humanity questions, just like we ask for animals. Why is the animal doing this? Mm-hmm. Uh, we should also look at why are the people doing this? Mm-hmm. Many times it is as simple as culture. It's just what they were taught um, from previous generations. Uh, it Maybe they haven't made the transition that animals are not just property, they're family. Um, it could be financial and not having an awareness that there are resources available, you know, to um, be able to spay and neuter your pets, get dog houses, get pet food. Um, I think trying to understand where all the resources are. I mean, we even offer behavioral resources, which is another reason why people might banish their dog to the outdoors. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they're eating your couch, yep. well, that's going to cause you know financial problems. It causes conflict within your family. It's frustrating. Um, it can be scary because now you think your dog's going to eat something. You can't afford the bills. And often... You know, I like to think the best of people and hope that there's a reason for it, Mm -hmm. not just I wanted to make this animal's life miserable. Um, So I think it's asking those questions and not just assuming that that, you know, all people who do this are horrible people. Absolutely. Um, They may just need to learn how to do better. And that's what we're here for, too. Um, Anyone that's, you know, thinking that they need to put their dog outside because of behavior issues, you know, I— I will help with that. I love that. <laughs> yes. I love that. Yeah. So I, I do think um, I'm definitely against, you know, keeping our dogs outside. Um, I, I don't see a reason to tether, but, uh, you know, that's from my perspective. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, I've, I've had friends back in Oklahoma who they wanted to adopt dogs, but because there were, they were going to put them on a tether, they had a good reason. It was they were on a farm. They were shifting animals around. And so it was going to be a short time. Mm-hmm. But it didn't matter because if it's one minute, five minutes, an hour, um, you know, these rescue organizations would not adopt out right. to those people. Um, so, you know, I, I do. I just think I think it can be avoided. There's plenty of resources nowadays. Um, but I think maybe that's something we can all do better is showing and making those resources more available, Mm -hmm. which I think Houston Pet Set does an amazing job at. Thank you. Yeah, I I agree with you. I think it's so important to understand, you're talking about the ABC, you know, why why are they making these decisions to put their pets outside and knowing that there are humane ways to do it. Yes. You know, there are pulley systems and there are things that aren't heavy chains and also knowing maybe don't do it during the heat of the day or freezing at night and, and Part of that now is explicitly against the law, which is great. Yes. Um, but coming from a place of compassion and education rather than condemnation, I think, is key. Right. Well, I mean, we do that with our animals. And I think uh, 
when you talk behaviorally about changing people's behavior, mm-hmm. uh, which I never suggest training people, by the way. Uh, <laughs> if, if you use a clicker, that's it's right. really easy. <laughs> no, no, I always tell my clients, if you start, these principles are really cool. They're amazing. They work, you know, they're going to feel like magic, mm-hmm. um, but you can't use them on people because it's the fastest way to destroy trust, right? And it's all trust-based. Yes. Um, but so what I'm more talking about is if we can use compassionate methods just like we use with our animals with people and we come from a point of understanding and giving these alternatives and then encouraging that uh, people are going to respond better to feeling like there's a solution versus a judgment of you're a horrible person why would you do this and now we take your pet that's right Right. yeah so it's uh, and that is punishment Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and punishment is uh, not always effective and we're so about positive reinforcement yeah. at this point. So it's all coming full circle. Yes, <laughs> yes, it does. Animals yes. and people, it works the same way. That's right. Um, Heather, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a fabulous conversation. We could talk about this all day. Yes. <laughs> um, but I think it's it's a valuable resource for people to know that there are trainers, that there are people out there who want to help you and not judge you. And That's right. Um, it's wonderful that you offer those free consultations just to give somebody a chance yep. to to see if it's what they need. Um, it's Sea Dog Animal Training. Um, I know you'll have a website. Um, thank you again for joining us, and hopefully our listeners learned something interesting today. Yes. Thank you so much for having us. It was Absolutely. An, an honor and a pleasure. Oh, thank you. Yes. <laughs>